0: I think that what he's done in the way that he's narrated the story is not just establishing energy as the key, it's establishing the nature of energy as functioning, as gradient reduction, which then the basis on which form can be maintained, which can't be thought in terms of the difference between two contraries, but has to be considered in terms of repetition, which is the energy of intensity that creates these intensity So I, I feel like... Although maybe the final claim is just a big claim that's been restated, the journey we took to get here, yeah, for me, is pretty incredible. Welcome to War Machine,
1: a podcast for theological nomads. In this episode, we continue our exploration of Clayton Crockett's book, Energy and Change, A New Materialist Cosmo Theology. Specifically, Matt Valor and Matt Baker discussed Chapter 1, Energy and the Dynamics of Nature. We're at WarMachinePodcast.com.
0: Enjoy. I'm really up for this conversation because I found this chapter absolutely incredible.
1: It is incredible. Um,
0: maybe you want to say something about why you think that is? I mean, it, this chapter is like a potted history of physics, right? Right, one right which is, you know, brilliant. Little anecdotes, you know, just peppering this history. But it's also a serious engagement with Deleuze and particularly difference and repetition, and trying to theorise critiques of Aristotle with developments in the sciences, in particular in physics, with critiques of Aristotle that get taken up by Deleuze. Uh, and then trying to relate those to developments in quantum physics in particular, I felt like implicit in all of that is a is this question about, firstly, how do we conceive of what energy is? But always, like we said last time, in the background is this question, what are we doing with energy? And how does how we think about energy affect what we're doing with energy, particularly in terms of how we're extracting natural resources and burning them and changing the climate and so on. So I felt like some of those things were, were still really in this chapter in a way that I found quite intriguing.
1: Yeah. It is a telling of the physics and how that story has developed around energy, but also philosophically, right? Mm. Those two things I think are happening at the same time Uh, in the telling of it. It's, I was going to say a wavering, but more of a weaving, I guess, together of those two along the way, as well as, as you say, the story from, I mean, it's quite a long story, isn't it? Right. Going from Aristotle. It is a long story. Aristotle, there's a lot in there. And it's it's a fairly long chapter, yeah. Um, but beginning with Aristotle and then ending up in Karen Barad and quantum theory and, and all that sort of thing, because there's so much here, I, I'm wondering if it makes sense to begin where he begins. Um, yeah, I think so. With Aristotle but As I recall, there's three main sections of this chapter, the Aristotle section, and then he gets into an interlude, I would say, where he's talking about dreaming. And then the second part of this gets into thermodynamics, which is a whole section unto itself. And then it goes to the quantum dynamics stuff. That's the big arc of the chapter, and the, there's a lot in there. But yeah, so he begins with Aristotle and Aristotle's conception of energy. On one hand, he's describing Aristotle's view on energy, but at the same time critiquing it, and also drawing a contrast between how Aristotle thought of energy and how we think about energy um, in the sort of modern scientific way that we, we do. And the main contrast is between potential energy and kinetic energy. And as with many things with Aristotle, he's working within within this binary logic, but then there's always a preferred term. And so the preferred term for him is kinetic. The reason why Aristotle is put right here at the introduction is because the way that he describes it is the way that we often think about energy. Even today, we think about it in Aristotelian terms, even if we want to push back against and resist Aristotle, this is a kind of level setting for how we talk about energy. And and the way that Aristotle talks about energy is a little bit, there's like some extra terms that get thrown in here because of the teleological slash theological presupposition that's going on. For Aristotle, there has to be a first cause, an unmoved mover. It's only against that that we can speak about change at all. And so then you have movement. You can speak about movement, but it's already subordinated to a sort of changeless realm and so this is where the platonism of aristotle comes through even though you know he's riffing on plato and doing his own thing there's still this latent platonism that grounds aristotle's thought around energy
0: yeah and i think there's a a kind of um if we're going to talk about change then we must have something that's stable in order to define that change could even be a thing right and and so the logic of that greek thought is well then there must be an unmoved mover because there must be something that is stable against which change could be changing. As I understood what Crockett was saying, it's that for Aristotle, ultimately stability is primary still, even though he wants to investigate change, stability is primary. But he then, um, he brings in Michael Marder, who has written about this in sort of how we aspire to different conceptions of energy, because what for Aristotle was a, a, the primacy of stability and also the primacy of actuality, like something is actually moving or being. For modern culture, I think modern with a capital M, it's potentiality in relation to energy that is actually, it's the thing we dream of. I found this really interesting because I don't think I'd really thought about this before. It felt very intuitively true, um, which is that the modern world is built on the potential to exploit energy. It's the potential energy, particularly in the combustion of hydrocarbons, that enables us to do all sorts of yeah. things and, and and create the world that we've created. And so it's the dream of of potentiality versus actuality that's given us the world that, that we have. And actually, just a little aside on that, uh, I've noticed before the word potentiality. I only really hear potentiality from uh, Americans. And I think that there's maybe something in that. I mean, it's partly uh, mm. a, a thing I've noticed in American discourse, uh, a tendency to turn adjectives into adverbs. Because by turning an adjective into an adverb, you make it more of a doing of the thing. So potential becomes potentiality. There's like a thing that's happening, which I think reflects American culture, which is, you know, it's the kind of there's potential. We're going to make something. And to me, that's bound up in this idea of energy like this. There is a huge energy. I find that as a British person, when I go to America, there's this huge energy in the culture and it translates into this ability to actually exploit the potential of energy uh, to transform culture and it's it's transformed the world. I, I think that's it's quite an interesting insight about the the nature of that but but what Michael Muller is arguing is you know this is killing us so yeah we should embrace Aristotle and return to something that's more to do with actuality.
1: Yeah I didn't have that thought but you know as an American that's something that you'll hear this all the time this or that person isn't living up to their full potential, um, Mm. which means that they're perhaps not expressing, it means they're, they're not putting whatever resources they have to work. This section was a little bit difficult for me to understand because usually you think about power in terms of actualized power, power that's put to work. If I were asked, you know, what is the obsession, what is the emphasis in power, In the modern era i would say it's just by way of intuition that it's kinetic energy it's actualizing this was an interesting insight it's more about potential and about storage and about the ability to extract and to do work uh, rather than the work itself yeah if you
0: don't have the if you don't have the potential to do it you can't eventually do it and therefore have power but it's where you go looking I suppose is where you go look if you go looking for the potential to have more it takes you to a different place than if you go looking for where is it where you can actually if you go looking for where do you already have some Mm -hmm. energy you become more settled i think that's the that's the argument being made that there's a settling to that there's a there's a slowing but if you're looking for the potential there's an acceleration of change
1: I'm finding it helpful thinking about potentiality in terms of a storehouse, which has the potential to be more explosive. I guess as it relates to martyr, I thought this was an interesting term that he uses here. Clayton wants to, uh, he's sympathetic to martyrs project, but thinks that at the end of the day, he wants to reimagine Aristotle, but does so on Aristotelian terms. He says, martyr dreams of energy as actuality, divorced from potentiality, and hopes that such a dream might save us from the nightmare of contemporary pyropolitics that is burning up the earth. There's something in that term of a pyropolitics, helps me think about what the argument being made here is. It's almost like a pyromancy or pyrotechnics to invoke Stiegler, right? It's not about the the fireworks necessarily. It's about the emphasis in how we think about energy that makes those kinds of things possible in the first place. Desire to capture, contain, store, and put energy to work. That's the obsession for the sort of technological modern era.
0: Yeah, I I think it's good, Matt. I I mean, part of what I sensed uh, Clayton is trying to do in here is to say, as you said, he agrees with Marder, that it's important to critique this obsession with potentiality that wants to burn up the earth. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, f- from the perspective of physics, he's saying... Uh, it's not possible. Uh, yeah, he's like, the, so there's the line, the rest energy, I think, he, yeah, he's, he's um, quoting Jennifer Coopersmith. The rest energy in a gram of matter is 900 trillion joules. Yeah, it's crazy. It's about the same as the energy released in the bomb at Nagasaki. So there is the idea that if we all just accepted rest and we slowed everything down and, you know, that there is no potential, I mean, there is potential in matter at rest. And it's this contradistinction between actuality and potentiality that is then what takes Crockett onto talking about Deleuze, because he wants to find a way past Aristotle's distinctions or his contraries. Right. in order to find a different way to think about energy and uh, and how it works
1: yeah and i think the uh, part of the argument is that martyr falls into the same trap that uh, or falls prey to the same kind of logic that uh, someone like nick land does in a sort of opposite sense so where martyr wants to Disavow, get rid of, not think about uh, potential energy and only think about dynamic, actualized energy, even, even though it's, you know, he, he thinks of it as dynamic energy at rest. That's kind of a complicated thing. But, and how that politically translates into a, well, let's just kind of slow down and go with the flow. You have the accelerationist argument on the other, other hand, which is like, no, let's just lean into potential energy and lean into the pyropolitics and let capitalism basically destroy itself. I think what Clayton's saying is that too is, is naive. And I think he says even Nick Land later on kind of comes to this realization that capitalism is, gets its energy and sustains itself from that procedure. And so what Clayton wants to say is it's a false choice. And then yeah. he introduces Deleuze as the third alternative where Deleuze's conception of energy, as I understand it, is uh, this is where I think Clayton really brings together the scientific and the philosophical in a way that sort of collapses that distinction to a large degree, where energy is now reconceived. Uh, well, first of all, potential energy and actualized energy are both held as necessary to this process. Uh, you know, you can't have creation without destruction, sort of thing. And wants to talk about energy as being, becoming itself. I'm not sure that's the right, exactly the right language, but it does this by moving from a higher energy state to a lower energy state. Energy is what moves across a gradient. Even if we can't say exactly what energy is, we can still speak about it
0: by measuring it and seeing its effects. I think what might be useful is to back up just a moment before we get to talking about entropy and thermodynamics, because I think that my reading of this is that what Crockett is doing is bringing in Deleuze, uh, following the discussion and the critique and and Marder's argument, we should potentially return to Aristotle. Mm -hmm. Crockett brings in Deleuze to say, Let's first of all, think about how we think about difference.
1: Right. Abstractly, philosophically.
0: Yeah. So what, like, what is difference? And I, I found this really helpful by the way, because I've said before, I, I feel like I've just insufficiently engaged with Deleuze. So I, you know, I'll try and summarize what I understood, but correct me if you think I've got this, if I've misunderstood anything. But my, my understanding here is that what Deleuze is trying to do is articulate difference without the necessity of some reference to the same. If we're going to think about two things that are different, on what basis would we say that they were different from each other if we can't relate them to some other notion of sameness against which we can say these are are different? And Deleuze wants to do that because he wants to break down the representational logic that requires one thing to be a representation of some other thing. And Deleuze does that by insisting upon a differentiator, which, as I understand it, is a mathematical term. Uh, and he takes this, I think, from Heidegger. And the differentiator is a way of placing two series side by side. So when you have a mathematical series, you can place a a differentiator as a way of contrasting these two series, and that produces what you might call a diffraction pattern, where there are areas of resonance and areas of dissonance, and it's the differentiator that creates those differences. And that's the basis of difference for Deleuze, rather than there being some kind of reference to some other representation of some kind of ideal against which you can say this is the same or different and the the force that brings those two series together and produces that that kind of difference is what Deleuze calls intensity and this force is producing differences and each difference says Crockett needs to be understood in terms of the title of his work, difference and repetition, because it's actually the repetition bit that is the key to understanding it. So if these differences are continually repeated, so if this intensity, this force brings these series together and keeps producing differences, all of those differences will be, for want of better language, slightly different or slightly the same as each other, And what you end up with is a surface, in Deleuze's language, an extensity that is the thing that appears often to be the same, which is why objects appear to hold their form. Uh, But within them, there may be all manner of changes going on, all manner of differences produced by this intensity, and, says Crockett, that is how we could think of retaining the unmoved mover because the unmoved mover is the relationship between extensity and intensity in the sense that intensity is constantly moving but through extensity something appears to be unmoved so we have a relationship between stability and change but it's not an absolute relationship where something is absolutely stable or something is absolutely changing. It's a constant play of forces or indeed energy.
1: Yeah. And that play of forces um, otherwise can be understood as entropy. Um, Right. So you have this sort of philosophical rendering that you just, I think, I think you put it very well. And then that sort of gets mapped onto a more scientific understanding of difference which is the movement of energy from one series t- to another across a gradient uh, which always moves in one direction which is how we get the arrow of time you know which kind of gives us the answer to why does time only move in one direction i find that very satisfying as an answer at least in a descriptive sense uh i i still kind of wonder well w- w- why does it go that way
0: well i but- think he does answer that to some degree because There's a recognition that time doesn't exist as a constant. There is no regular time in the universe, but entropy produces time because it's irreversible. And because it's irreversible, then something has gone to a future from a past that you couldn't ever fully return to, even if you can cycle back to something that seems very, very similar to it. But those things happen at, at different kinds of scales. So Crockett's arguing time does exist in localized contexts, but it's not linear, and it's time is different in at different scales, in different combinations.
1: T- time itself is something that is produced through these interactions.
0: Yeah, but the why is a, I mean I, I think there's quite a clear answer that this is the result of statistical interactions, which I think is a theological answer. Um, to the question of why does time happen in this way okay that's interesting why is that a theological answer to that well because it's a comment on causality isn't it um what causes entropy to occur in certain formats in certain places that therefore creates time in that localized context i mean and by localized context let's be clear i mean we could be talking about planet earth you know as a localized context Sure. Uh, or even the solar system. If this, in the end, comes back to, and and we're we're maybe jumping ahead here to the to the rest of the chapter, but in the end, it boils down to the statistical probability that a particle will or won't exist at any given moment in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there appears then to be no, there, there's no unmoved mover that operates as a first cause. The only unmoved mover is the form that gives rise to continual plays of intensity and extensity. Yeah. Um, and I suppose in my mind, that is a, a, a theological response in the sense that um, the denial of a first cause and the reframing of an unmoved mover feels like a, a theological move, at least to some degree.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I could see that. I mean, it's definitely... A move in the direction of Spinoza, which is not surprising, you know, given Deleuze's philosophical uh, proclivities. But I think the reason why that is important is because Spinoza is, uh, depending on who you ask, either an atheist slash pantheist, or you get the other side where it's like, well, you know, he talks about God all the time. And so I think there's a sort of undecidability in Spinoza. I think reading him as, as an atheist is actually a a valid way of reading him in the sense that, sure, to sacralize everything is to uh, sacralize nothing. You get a sort of parallax effect. I think it's important when talking about the Aristotelian backdrop of this. It's a sort of reconception of the one that you get into lose as many, right? And so there's, like, there's a breaking apart of this dualism. There's a cutting across of difference that occurs by way of difference. Uh, I mean, it's pretty radical move philosophically, but then to sort of demonstrate that this is foundational for how how time works, how the universe functions is by way of difference, and that the very difference itself, that, that differentiator is the sort of motor of change and of novelty. I think in a lot of ways, and for a lot of people, very counterintuitive, and I think it's also very difficult to talk about. I have a hard time talking about it. But maybe we should say something more about how this gets fleshed out and expressed in thermodynamic terms. So equilibrium thermodynamics. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes.
0: <laughs> All right. I'll do my best. I just, I really liked what you just said, though, about what you were riffing on there about Spinoza and Deleuze and how he gives it an alternative to kind of conceptualizing the world. And I think that's something we should sort of have in mind as we track through this book, because in the end we'll get to the chapter on radical theology where we engage more explicitly. I think that's quite interesting. Okay. So, so thermodynamics. So we're in the 18th century and uh, some British guys are inventing the steam engine. And um,
1: that's how I picture the 18th century, by the way, just in general.
0: (laughs) Right. That's what went on. Just a bunch of
1: unbathed fuckers. (laughs)
0: So the steam engine is absolutely tied up with the beginning of the extractivist or the scaling of an extractivist industry. And um, Crockett makes the point about it being important for pumping water out of coal mines. And uh, on behalf of Cornwall, I'd also want to just state that some of the biggest innovations in steam engineering went on here in Cornwall. To do with tin and copper mining before we're really into coal, uh, and so the the idea of extraction—you know—it's not just coal extraction; it's mineral extraction generally. The extraction of materials in order to provide energy and shape to the world drives this innovation. I feel like that is a metaphor for Crockett. Uh, it, it, even before we get into talking about thermodynamics, is even this whole subject is driven by energy extraction. Mm -hmm. So so this this happens, you get the steam engine innovation. And the key thing about a steam engine is uh, heat energy transfers from a hot bit to a cold bit. And that gradient between hot and cold is able to drive productive work. And so during the 18th century, as the, the science of thermodynamics begins in its nascent form to develop, energy and work are almost completely the same in the way that they're conceived of, because it's what can we do to do something productive here? Yeah. So work in very human terms, work in terms of getting the industrial revolution going.
1: Yeah. And the conception is very much tied to the steam engine, which is a closed system. And as you say, you know, the, the idea of how can we put these resources to work. Yeah.
0: Right. So as that industrial revolution develops, uh And the science of thermodynamics becomes more and more developed and we should say there are several pages on this and this is clayton crockett rattling through complex things at speed yeah uh so there's a lot in here which we can't cover everything but i think the key developments are there's a theorization of heat by uh the guy who comes to be known as lord kelvin that there is an absolute zero and uh, as that eventually gets taken up by Einstein in 1905 in his paper on Brownian motion to clarify that actually uh, there are atoms and molecules and they move and they do stuff.
1: And absolute zero, just to be clear, is the lowest possible energy state. It's an absolute limit. It's a physical
0: limit. It's a physical it's an unattainable physical limit. Right. Uh, uh, but yes, it's the temperature at which nothing moves at all all particles lose their kinetic energy. So the reason I bring in Einstein's later paper is that you it's not until, until he writes out that the theory of atoms is actually proven and the matter becomes more or less settled. And the idea that the temperature of particles is related to their internal kinetic energy, uh, which is what's actually driving temperature. So the yeah. more kinetic energy a particle has the higher that the particles have in a, in a substance the higher uh, its energy is higher its thermal energy
1: movement equals heat
0: right thermodynamics then also is stating uh, energy can't be uh, created or destroyed uh, and the second law of thermodynamics which is the one that everybody knows which is energy in a system in a closed system will always tend towards equilibrium so the, the heat energy in a system will always tend towards the equilibrium. So, you know, if we thought about the universe as a closed system, then we would imagine that over time, eventually all of this will slowly slump to a slow and stagnant rest mm-hmm. because all of the heat energy will gradually transfer to things that are colder until all the temperatures balanced out. All the particles are moving at exactly the same vibrational energy and, um, and that's that. There's yeah, no heat he falling apart. Right, heat death, yeah. exactly. So that's well known. But what Crockett's doing is bringing in the development of thermodynamics during the 20th century. And it's not straightforward because a big part of um, discussions on entropy in the 20th century make entropy about information. And Claude Shannon, who's the theorist who basically, I mean, his work on entropy is what basically gives rise to the ability that we can have computers and the yeah. internet and all of this and and confusingly he theorizes entropy as the opposite of how entropy is theorized within thermodynamics um but while that's going on science is still developing the idea of entropy and thermodynamics and clarifying that yes while within a closed system uh, everything will tend towards equilibrium. Uh, We don't live in closed systems. We don't really have any many closed systems unless we artificially create them for for time limited periods. Um, Earth is not a closed system because the energy from the sun comes in and some heat is radiated out. Uh, And so actually the reality of most systems is that you've got a source and a sink. And what happens in that context is absolutely extraordinary because the movement of energy across gradients is actually part of creating and maintaining form.
1: Yeah, I think uh, this is really crucial. And I, I, he uses this example in the book, and I've, I mean, it's one I've heard before, maybe even from him, I don't remember, but um, it's the simple example of you connect two bottles together, put water in one of them and turn it upside down, and the water very inefficiently kind of clugs blah, 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 uh, down into the into the lower one. Uh, but if you just simply tilt it at an angle, the way that it moves to the lower energy state now takes on form. You know, it creates that kind of, um, what do you call it? A spiral. Um...
0: Yeah, like a vortex.
1: Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. It creates a vortex. So, and the vortex is a form. That example made me think back to when we spoke to Tim Ingold. I can't remember exactly what the context is in which we were talking about it, but I remember him talking about life as a kind of eddy. Or a vortex that has formed for a while and eventually dissipates because it can't hold out against the pressures of the uh, of the system. I'm not sure why I mentioned that, but I I think there's just like an interesting connection there. It's obviously a metaphor, but I think it's performing a function that's a little bit more than a metaphor. If that makes sense, I think there's that's a very true. real material sense in which that's true. Like there's a circulation of energy that creates form, and this can be thought across complexity and scale to say, well, is this not what the climate is? Is this not what the human body is? Um, It's just circulating energy. It it seems to defy entropy, but in fact, it is only accelerating entropy. Yeah, Yeah. that's
0: right. What you've just said is exactly right. So Schrodinger writes the book, What is Life? uh, and coins the term negative entropy. And so negentropy has become this word that's been used as how life maintains form against entropic forces. And what Crockett's doing, which I, I found completely fascinating, is I can't quite remember the um, scientists that he quotes. Uh, I feel like one of them is Dorian Sagan, who's um, uh, Lynn Margulis' uh, son. Anyway, they, they, they are claiming entropy is the most efficient way for energy to move across a gradient. And there are all sorts of gradients, not just thermal gradients. I mean, you could talk about gradients of, uh, of pressure as well as temperature. You can talk about redox gradients in uh, reduction and oxidation reactions. I mean, you, you know, a- electrical potential energy uh, in a battery is uh, a- and-, and in our cells yeah. is it- a gradient. I mean, there's all manner of gradients. And entropy is the means by which the most efficient route is taken to turn that gradient into an equilibrium. And what happens is exactly as you said, that in getting certain parts of a system to move across that gradient in the most efficient way, in certain contexts, other parts of an energy gradient are maintained. And therefore, form is actually held against entropic forces, but not overall against entropy, but it's actually entropy in certain parts of that system that's maintaining what appears to be a lack of entropy at the system level as a whole. Um, And that would be a a sort of fundamental rationale for how life maintains its form, but not just life, other other things as well. Other inorganic structures Mm -hmm. are able to maintain their form against the force of entropy because they're at smaller scales within a system, some things are being maintained. brilliant line here, uh, which is about the reduction of gradient differentials, Um, energy is the excess of being that seeks equilibrium in the form of gradient reduction. So I'm a constant play of energy seeking equilibrium in the form of energy reduction. And that process is is maintaining this form, which for a brief time on the surface of planet Earth, uh, you know, people around me and me will call matt valor yeah and and so there's a sense in which i say actually that it, that's an illusion because i'm continually changing all the time all the time and the, the me that is me today isn't the me that was me last year let alone uh 10 years ago yet at the same time i am maintaining form i mean i'm maintaining form according to a code yeah. you're hard baked into every single cell in my body that's performing these regular processes that are that are the result of the excess of being that seeks equilibrium in the form of gradient reduction. So that same process that's making me a play of intense in in the Delusian sense, is also maintaining this extensity at at multiple levels, not just at the surface of my body, but I think at the level of my organs and of my cells, they maintain sufficient form for the- um, They hold form over time. Yeah, the difference and repetition going on is sufficient that, you know, you or I do come along and name the things around us with enough stability that we still name them the same thing the next day. And I I suppose I feel like there's something in in the both end of of that sense of if we hang on to an identity too strongly, we're faking it. But if we knee jerk from that and say there's nothing stable here, We've also missed the point, I think, about entropy, which is that entropy is actually creating stability. And we, that you and I maintain a relationship because each time we talk, we feel like there's something continual. I don't think we're completely making that up. Do you know what I mean?
1: I do know what you mean. I guess this kind of comes back to maybe the difference between someone like Crockett and Malibu and, and energy as being interior to form. And that form is a result of a series of of differences that register for the individual. And yes, as a matter of convention, and as a matter of fact, you, you, I think maybe this comes down to a question of language. And I'm really curious to see where where we get to with the death of God stuff, because I'm thinking of Nietzsche's famous line, you know, I'm afraid we won't be rid of God so long as we have grammar. Uh, and I think that there's a very real sense in which the very way that we think i don't know i think we're like i was going to say cultural platonists. maybe we're sort of biologically <laughs> adapted to be platonists and that's why it's so difficult for us to uh, think about difference in this way and then if you th- think about being as energy transformation across a gradient from a higher state to a lower state there's a sort of deeply canonic resonance to that theologically speaking mm. that's irreversible and so there's a whole range of consequences, I think, that can be considered from that point of view. But maybe that's getting ahead of ourselves. I'll, I'll hold on I'll hold on to that stuff. Um,
0: I like that thought. That's nice. Be irreversible. That's really good.
1: All right. Where, where do we need to go? I feel like we haven't really rounded th- this off. Um, sure. We, we're still talking about Deleuze and, and how that conversation of difference maps on to equilibrium and non-equilibrium thermodynamics. I think we've maybe said enough on that to, to get us into the quantum dynamics. Yeah, um, I think
0: that's the bit that we need to touch on in order to kind of round off the chapter. So Crockett does a good job of introducing Einstein's contribution and then how that's taken up by... Bohr and Heidegger and Schrodinger in ways that Einstein is not happy with, but in the end, he's proved wrong. Uh, and I think that where Crockett wants to go with it in the end is is a few different places. Uh, well, I guess the, the one that I can think of right off the top, forgive me if
1: you're already going to say this, but is there's a pushing aside of any kind of determinism. I guess this brings back the Epicurean swerve, there's other ways to talk about it in terms of probability there's a deeply evolutionary cosmology here where probability and statistical probability plays a, an important role
0: yeah i i think that's true and um and i think that what's the sort of physics argument that's being made because I, I it does it's very ambitious i would say for a philosopher of religion to make a physics argument but i think that that's what he's doing um and I don't feel equipped to analyze or assess this but the argument I think that's being made is that the thing that ties together thermodynamics and quantum mechanics is energy and and that's why he wants to bring, he wants to tell this history of physics and say on the one hand you've got this work going on in in thermodynamics to to kind of develop Non equilibrium thermodynamics and introduce much more than just the thermo into the dynamics so that we can think about the interplay of all sorts of different types of gradient reduction. Uh, And, you know, Einstein's contribution to that is to introduce things like the electromagnetic field, where you've now got electrical gradients across which um, movement can be achieved via electrical potential rather than just uh, thermal energy creating kinetic energy. So there are other ways in which movement happens. But also then when we get into uh, quantum mechanics, he wants to talk about virtual particles with Barad. So subatomic particles at the scale of an electron will kind of wink in and out of existence as part of this- uh, Quantum
1: quantum field. field.
0: Yeah. Uh, because the quantum field is entangled with a void where something is and then is not. um, But in the end, he's bringing all of this down to um, uh, Schrodinger's equation, which needs to use the Hamiltonian constant Mm -hmm. uh, for reasons of time and also my lack of full understanding. I don't think we can entirely explain all of this, but the point he's making is, even when you get down to Schrodinger's famous wave uh, equation, the H in the equation is the Hamiltonian function, which is energy. So at the level of thermodynamic systems and at the level of quantum waves, uh, everything is resolved by coming down to energy. And I think that's where the chapter lands. It's, you know, let me give you a history of physics and let me persuade you that the most important fundamental idea in the history of physics, even up until the the most recent discoveries and conundrums, is energy. And so uh, that's the basis on which all of these different parts of physics should be thought. And because he set at the beginning this distinction from Aristotle on Um, uh, the difference between kinesis and dynamis, Mm -hmm. so movement and uh, the dynamics uh, that is originally, in Aristotle's sense, something that you would call potential, uh, but in modern physics has become dynamics. The dynamics and the most fundamental way of thinking about the world in terms of energy uh, th- those things come together. And I think that's the book ending of the chapter is if we're going to think philosophically about the world and think about difference and repetition with Deleuze, if we do that with physics, in the end, we come down to energy is the key. Energy is the key for Deleuze. It's the key for physics. It's the idea that ties it all together. Um, and, and and that's a, a big claim for chapter one to allow us to go to the rest of the book.
1: Yeah. I mean, he makes the claim, you know, in the introduction, This is a lot of exposition to land on that basic idea, you know, credit where credit is due. He did the work. This is now a supported argument, uh, more or less. I don't feel particularly equipped to evaluate the telling of this this story. Um, Again, at the end, we're landing in the same place. Nothing works without energy transformation and energy works on the basis of the establishment and then the reduction of gradients,
0: you know. I think that what he's done in the way that he's narrated the story is not just establishing energy as the key it's Mm -hmm. establishing the nature of energy as functioning as gradient reduction which is then the basis on which form can be maintained which can't be thought in terms of the difference between two contraries but has to be considered in terms of repetition which is the energy of intensity that creates these extensities so I, I feel like Although maybe the final claim is just a big claim that's been restated, the journey we took to get here, yeah, for me, is pretty incredible.
1: no, I agree. And um again, I think the bringing together of these sort of philosophical arguments with the materialist scientific arguments, I think those things together do make a compelling case, at least enough to support the basic claim being made and why you would want to center energy in the way that he does. So, um, yeah i'm excited to see where it goes from here
0: yeah i'm I'm pretty excited i mean, so i think we are the next chapter is about life so it's kind of how does this yeah how does what it talked about in chapter one sustain life so that'll be interesting
1: yeah it, it will be interesting so uh yeah we'll, we'll see what comes next and um i gotta bounce it looks like we're out of time anyway
0: well it's been uh, a good exploration i enjoyed the conversation
1: yep yeah, same as always um we'll talk soon yeah. all right Peace. All right, man. Peace.